Well, good morning. Uh, We're so glad to see you today. And before we dive into our study of God's Word in Mark's Gospel, uh, I want to celebrate some good news with you, kind of keep you updated with where uh, we are uh, with certain things going on in our life of our church. We are now officially nine months into Next Gen, uh, that 36-month spiritual journey we're taking together. That means we're one-fourth of the way there. And just to help us all stay updated on our personal commitments, uh, we are this week going to be mailing out uh, some next-gen contribution statements. We want you to be watching for those and checking those out and and making sure we've got everything recorded correctly. We are also thinking at this season of the year um, that a lot of us are receiving a tax refund around this time, and this might be, for some of us, uh, a good opportunity maybe to catch up on some commitments to next gen that we have fallen behind on, or maybe some of us will choose to get ahead. And we, we want to really mention this to you now because every dollar that we receive before we lock in our financing, that's going to happen in July, uh, every dollar we receive now is going to help us keep our mortgage, our indebtedness as, as low as, as we possibly can and can make a real uh, difference, uh, those of you who are able to do that. And then also want to mention to you that we know that a number of you have become part of the Southwinds family since last year, uh, since we launched the Next Gen Spiritual Initiative. And you may sometimes be wondering what this is all about. Well, periodically during these 36 months, we are having uh, what we call a Next Gen Vision Gathering. And it's a, a meeting of a smaller group of people, probably 20 or 30 uh, people coming together. We share a meal together, and it gives you a chance uh, to ask questions directly to me. Uh, me can, for me to share with you what's happening in NextGen, what we're seeking to do, what God has called us to do. And we want to give you a heads up a month from today, May 2nd is going to be our next uh, NextGen Vision Gathering. And you can sign up on the current, uh, you can sign up on your Connect card. We want you to get that on your calendar so you'll be able uh, to be a part of that. But all of that is leading up to what really is the most exciting NextGen news. And I want to tell you about our progress in terms of our giving We've got a graphic up here that shows that we are now at $842,000 and uh, some change. Our goal is $2.542 million. And some of you who are math wizards have already been figuring out what that means. The rest of you are like going, I don't know what's up there. Well, let me just tell you what this tells us is that we've made it uh, 33% of the way in 25% of the time. So we're making good progress. We're getting down the road. I want to say thank you. Uh, to everybody who's been giving faithfully and generously and sacrificially. God's using you to make a difference. And uh, Lord willing, a year from now, we're going to be worshiping in a brand new auditorium. And uh, we're going to have more space for our students, more space for our children, uh, more opportunities uh, for us as a congregation to impact um, our region with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you will keep praying. I hope you will keep giving thanks to the Lord. And so why don't we just all say amen, praise the Lord. We're excited about what God is doing. So if you don't have your Bibles open to the gospel of Mark, go ahead and get there. And as we get into this message this morning, let me remind you, the idea of this series is that we will only reach our region, Tracy, Mountain House, Lathrop, as we actually love like Jesus loved. So we've been looking at accounts of Jesus' life from Mark's gospel that give us insight into how Jesus showed love to people. And we have seen that for us to love like Jesus loved, we have to be reaching out and touching people, maybe people very different from us. We've seen that we need to be willing to do whatever it takes, you know, even digging through a roof. That's, it's going to require that kind of commitment. And today, what we're going to focus on is the reality that, that Jesus didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to them. He went to them. So today's message is called Hit the Road because that's what Jesus did. Jesus went to people. Jesus met people. He got to know people. He showed love to people. And that's what we must also do if we're going to reach our region. And so I just want you to be asking yourself through this message a very important, very personal question. And it's simply this. How much do people outside God's kingdom matter to me? How much do people outside God's kingdom matter to me? Now, everybody knows what that answer to that question is supposed to be, but what's the truth in your life? What's the reality uh, in your life? 
And to get us into this, I want to show you a video clip that I first saw over 10 years ago. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. It happened in 2006. And last year, CBS did a retrospective of this 10 years down the road. Maybe you've seen this. Millions of people have watched this video. I think it's one of the most amazing, most incredible athletic performances, maybe the most that I have ever seen. Let me show it to you. We had uh, planned to bring you a story tonight about a kind of prep school that prepares football players for the NFL draft and big contracts. But we're going to call an audible. We're going to switch sports tonight because we've run across an absolutely amazing basketball player that we want you to see. Here's Steve Hartman. Greece Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Let's keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. For the past couple years, he's been assisting coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. You know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow, all hour and a half, and let's get ready for Acadia. Let's go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team, for the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and toweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make I just, it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed too, but the third was a charm. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total. And each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. His last basket, right at the buzzer, created total mayhem. Because he is autistic, Jason says he's used to feeling different, but never this different, never this wonderful. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Rochester, New York. I don't know how many times I have watched that video, and it kind of gets me every time. You know, my, my favorite moment is when he says, yeah, I was hot as a pistol. <laughs> and I was just thinking, what is it uh, about something like that that just moves you when you watch it? What, what is it about that that just goes way, way down deep in your soul? And I think, I think it's because what you see in something like that is just the incalculable worth uh, of a single human being. And deep in your soul, you know that. Even if you don't have words to express it, you know. And that actually expresses the first truth that we must understand if we are going to hit the road. Uh, just so you know, we're going to be ranging across five chapters of Mark today, and I'm going to be kind of connecting some things from different places to help you see some big picture truths that are going on in this gospel that maybe you would have not noticed at first glance. And here's the first truth. Go ahead and write this down. People on the other side matter to God. Now, a big part of what's going on in these chapters is that Mark is showing us how deeply Jesus believed that all people matter to God. One day, Jesus dropped a bomb. Early in his ministry, he's been teaching in Galilee. It's his home territory. It's where he and his disciples are comfortable. Everything is, is going quite well. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, Mark describes this. He writes... Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake 
while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Now, at the end of this chapter, he writes this. That day, when evening came after all the teaching, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. That's the bomb. Now, the other side of the lake was not just a geographical term in Jesus' day. It was also kind of a technical term. Jesus wasn't just talking about geography. What Jesus was saying to his disciples was, let's go from our home region of Galilee across the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis region. Now, Decapolis was the Greek word for 10 cities, and it was enemy territory. These were pagan people. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 10, it reads, This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, Megabites, and Jebusites. I'm just checking to see if you were listening. These were known as the seven nations of Canaan. Acts 13, 19 gives a New Testament perspective on this. It says, God overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. You see, in Jesus' day, rabbinic tradition said that the Decapolis, that was where the seven nations of Canaan had settled. It was a region filled with pagan temples, the ruins of which are are still being excavated today. The religions that were practiced there, they celebrated violence and sexuality and wealth. It was everything that Decapolis was that Israel was not. The Decapolis was also a center for Roman power. Now, what animal was considered unclean in Israel? We all know it's the pig, right? On the other side, in the Decapolis, pigs were worshipped. And in the Decapolis, there was a a legion of soldiers, Roman soldiers, 6,000 of them. They were stationed on the other side. Anybody want to guess what the symbol for that legion was that they put up on the standards that marched in front of the soldiers? It was a boar's head, head of a pig. See, the Jews looked at the Decapolis. They regarded it as the other side, as the place where Satan lived. It was dark. It was evil. It was demonic. It was the place where God was not. Nobody ever goes to the other side, especially not a rabbi. And then one day, the disciples hear their rabbi just casually say, hey, guys, let's go over to the other side. What's he doing? Doesn't he know that the kingdom is supposed to come for Israel? It's almost like Jesus doesn't know it's the other side. It's almost like Jesus thinks it's his side. It's almost like Jesus thinks every side belongs to him. It's almost like Jesus thinks all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Even the seven nations of Canaan. What a strange rabbi. Now turn to Mark chapter 5. We read here, that Jesus and his disciples sail across the the lake. They they go to the Decapolis. And and we know after reading chapter four that Jesus has been drawing big crowds on his side in Galilee. But when they go over to the other side, to the Decapolis, there's no one there to meet him. No one except one man possessed by evil spirits. That's the welcoming committee. And this doesn't surprise the disciples because it's the other side. Nobody goes to the other side. And this one man, he he is so desperate. Mark tells us that no one could subdue him. They tried to chain him, but he broke the chains. He was wild. He lived among the tombs where the corpses were. He was constantly cutting himself with rocks because of the torment inside of him. This man comes to Jesus and he falls down on his knees before him. Verses 7 through 10 describe it this way. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. And you, you need to enter into that. This is not just you know, how we read it. This is a, a crazy person who must have looked so strange, probably even terrifying, screaming at the top of his lungs as Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat. Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And we remember his response was, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
Now, you need to know that legion here is a loaded word. In fact, this story is full of loaded words and images. There, there is, as I said, a legion of foreign soldiers who live here because that's the other side. This is just a reminder of all the powers that are arrayed against Jesus. And the demons that possess this man, well, they are afraid of Jesus because he is God and they are not. They ask his permission to be sent into some pigs. There's this herd of 2,000 pigs nearby. Jesus gives permission. The demons enter the pigs. The pigs rush down the steep bank. They rush into the lake and they all drown. Now, some of us hear this and we feel kind of sad. But you need to know that someone in Jesus' day would have, would have seen this very, very differently than we do. Because, you know, we think of pigs today as kind of cute little animals. You know, Porky Pig, Miss Piggy, Babe the Pig. And this just seems kind of sad. Poor little pigs. Now, some of you are thinking this is kind of sad because what a waste of bacon, you know. And <laughs> but people in Jesus' day, they didn't think like that. Pigs were unclean animals. And on top of that, all of the Israelites remembered a historical occurrence that was fresh in their national memory. It was recorded in the book that we know as 1 Maccabees. It took place about a century and a half before Jesus. There were some Jewish patriots that tried to throw off the Romans who were the oppressors to set Israel free. Uh, Rome conquered them, tried to force them to eat pig meat, to humiliate them. They refused, and the Romans slaughtered them by the thousands. So to the people of Jesus' day, a pig's head was also a symbol of the Roman legion, a symbol of Roman power. And so this whole story, it would read to a first century Jewish person as a pitched battle between the forces of darkness and light, good and evil. And it is no contest, pigs lose. Now, the response of the people on the other side is kind of fascinating. Look at verses 14 through 17. We read, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. Now, kind of stop here and imagine, like, you're the pig herder, and you come home, and you know pigs. And your boss says, where are the pigs? And you say, "Um, well, they all committed mass suicide. (laughs) Somebody after the 8 o'clock service told me I should have said they all committed mass suicide. I told him, I said, well, that's a good thought. You probably don't know this, but this is actually here in Mark's gospel, the first historical occurrence of deviled ham. Some of you just need to know that. Well, Mark writes, and the people, they went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Here's the response. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. It's a very interesting response. They, They don't say, wow, this is a man with power. This is great. They don't think, you know, I have a sick mom. I have a tormented child. I have this friend who's just troubled. Maybe Jesus can help them. Maybe he can use his power to change their lives. They don't think this. They beg him to go away. He's got power, but he's from the other side. Someone from the other side could hurt them. Someone from the other side might judge them. See, they're afraid of someone from the other side. And so the people beg Jesus to go away, and Jesus does. In fact, if you ask Jesus to go away, he may just do that. But look at verses 18 and following. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And again, you've got to picture this. This man prostrates himself before Jesus. He must have been saying, Jesus, I, I have lived here in this darkness all of my life. It has destroyed me. Please don't leave me. Please take me with you. Jesus, I just want to be with you. I'll leave everything I have, everything I know, Jesus. I just want to come with you. I just want to follow you. He he doesn't just ask. Mark says he begs, he cries, he pleads, he's desperate. And Jesus says no. Jesus 
who has been going around back on his side proclaiming the kingdom of God is now here in me, in my body, on this earth, in my teaching. The kingdom of God is now available to anyone. You can just walk right in. Jesus says to this man, you can't come with me. Stay here and go and tell your story. We have to try to imagine what that man felt as he stood on the shore and watch that boat row away. He's not in it. But he says to himself, Jesus saved my life. I will do what he says. If he asks me to go and tell other people about him, then that is exactly what I'll do. Look at verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, don't forget that. We're going to come back here, but just kind of set it a little to the side right now. Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples get this because sometimes, sometimes Jesus followers have a hard time understanding how much Jesus loves the other side and how every side belongs to him. Sometimes Jesus followers, they have this tendency to kind of want to just hang out with their side and just kind of think their side is the best. We're kind of funny that way. This brings us to the second truth that helps us to hit the road. Here's what this is. Write this down. People on the other side should matter to us. You see, the problem is not whether people matter to God. There's no question there. The question is, do they matter to us? Now, as we, we, we look in this gospel, Jesus is on the other side another time. And he's teaching like he always does. We, we read about this time, this occurrence in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to show you some details from this story. There's a large crowd, about 4,000 people that gathered. This is verses 1 and 2. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, this is Mark 8. If you have been reading through Mark's gospel and you get to Mark 8, then you've already read Mark 6. And in Mark 6, a very similar story takes place. Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of 5,000 people, but there's a difference. Mark 6 happens on Jesus' side. And in Mark 6, we are told that the disciples come to Jesus with concern for the crowds on the very first day. In Mark 6, the disciples initiate concern for the crowd. They tell Jesus the people need something to eat. And so Jesus responds and feeds them. Verses 42 to 44 says, They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now when an Israelite in that day heard the number 12, they inevitably thought of one thing, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 was a sacred number to them. It was a a picture of the people of God. Now, how many disciples were there? 12. In choosing 12 disciples, Jesus was sending a signal. It it wasn't that he, you know, ran out of disciples. There's not 13. I got to, you know, have 12. He was deliberately declaring in a way everyone understood that he was now restoring, that he was now building the true community of Israel. 12 disciples, not an accident. Twelve baskets left over, not an accident. And people there would have immediately begun to connect the dots. God is providing for his people. God hasn't forgotten about his people. God cares for his people. That's Mark 6. Back to Mark 8. Jesus is teaching now on the other side. And this huge crowd, 4,000 people, gathers. And Jesus teaches them one day, Disciples don't say anything. He teaches them a second day. Disciples still don't say anything. He teaches them a a third day, and the disciples still are not saying anything to Jesus about feeding the crowd. Why not? Well, they're on the other side. Let them feed themselves. But Jesus has compassion And Jesus initiates the miracle. He miraculously feeds the people on the other side, just like he miraculously fed Israel. And 
when he gets done, when everybody gets done eating, just like he had done in Mark 6, he sends his disciples out to collect what is left over. Did you notice this? Have you ever seen this in verses 8 and 9? The people ate and were satisfied, just like Mark 6. Afterwards, the disciples picked up, just like Mark 6. Wait. Seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This time, not 12. This time, seven baskets of food left over. And there's a reason for this. How many nations of Canaan did the Jews believe live in the Decapolis on the other side? Seven. How many baskets of food left over? Seven. See, Jesus is saying, he's telling those who read and pay attention, good news is coming. It's coming for the 12 tribes of Israel. I haven't forgotten about them. They're mine. I want to feed them. And good news is also coming for the seven nations of Canaan. I haven't forgotten them either. They're mine too. I'll feed them too. 12 tribes, seven nations, doesn't matter to me. I love them all. You see, the gospel of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is good news for everyone, even people on the other side. Therefore, they should matter to us. Do you see the question that we must wrestle with? The question needs to become very personal. Will they matter to me? In my regular life, the life that I actually live, will they matter? Will we do more than just agree while we sit here in our church service that this is what we should do? Will we actually do it? Will we hit the road? And do we have any idea what can happen when people on the other side start mattering to Christ followers? Let me show you one more detail. When Jesus goes to the other side the first time, as we've seen, just one guy meets him. And when the people encounter what Jesus is and what he does, they they beg him to leave. But we know later on, Jesus makes yet another trip to the Decapolis. We actually find out about this trip in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Let me read some verses there, verses 29 to 31. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. The other side praises the God of Israel. Again, first time Jesus goes to the other side, nobody's home except one demon-possessed, demon-tormented wretch. And everyone begs him to leave. But the second time he comes... He has what is one of the most dramatic receptions that we find anywhere in all of the Gospels. What's the difference? What happened? Can you see? Do you see? One man told his story. One man traveled from one town to another through one neighborhood after another. One man said, let me tell you about this man Jesus and about what he did for me. And it changed entire cities. One man who maybe at that time could better reach people on the other side than Jesus' disciples, maybe even than Jesus himself at that time. And one day, just think about it, one day Jesus said, good news is coming to this God-forsaken, pig-eating, demon-worshiping, Roman-infested other side. And he said, and you... Demon boy, tomb dweller, chain breaker, you, you, you're going in the game. Now imagine when they return and they see these vast crowds. Imagine that that Jesus sees this man who had been tormented by demons, but now he sets free. I think Jesus talked to him. I think Jesus would have said to him, ah, son, Last time I came here, last time I came here, they begged me to leave, but now they can't get enough. Now they are wide open to the kingdom, and son, it's because of you. And I sort of think that former demon-possessed guy said, yeah, I was hot as a pistol. (laughs) 
Jesus loves the other side. And what a different world we would live in if as a church we would really understand that it's all his side, that he hasn't divided it up like we do, our side, the other side, right side, wrong side. It's just all his side. And Jesus, we we see in the Gospels, has what can seem like the oddest strategy for reaching the other side. Here's what it is. It brings us to the third truth, God's plan. God's plan to reach the other side, and it's this. We hit the road. We hit the road. Will you say those four words with me? We hit the road. That's God's plan. Last thing Jesus does before he leaves this earth, when he ascends to the Father, he gathers his friends together and he says to them, okay, everything I know, everything I've taught you about the kingdom, I'm handing it all over to you. And here's the strategy, friends. Are you ready? Are you listening? You hit the road. That's the plan. I'm leaving now. I've taught you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. You've watched me. Now you go. In Acts 1.8, Jesus puts it this way. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling his followers, he says, you are going to end up being scattered all over the earth. You will go over to the other side and it will be difficult sometimes, but do not be discouraged. This is my plan for you to hit the road. Have you ever wondered if maybe the early disciples listened to Jesus and thought, Jesus, this is kind of a bad plan. I don't know if this is a really good strategy, Jesus. I mean, look at us. (laughs) And it really is almost laughable. I mean, just a couple hundred people. I mean, what are the odds? Imagine maybe like you're a Martian and you're looking down on planet Earth in the year 35 AD and and you're asked, who do you think is more likely to survive? Who are you going to bet on, Christianity or the Roman Empire? I mean, you wouldn't bet on a ragtag group of people, a few hundred of them, claiming that some obscure Jewish carpenter has risen from the grave, would you? And yet, today, his movement has been so successful. Over two billion people are followers of his today. His movement has been so successful that today, you know, we we name our kids Peter and Paul and Mary, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. How did this happen? Was it because Jesus' followers, you know, got better at religious arguing than everyone else? Was it because they had, you know, so much money, financial resources, or they built such wonderful buildings better than anyone else? No. It happened for one reason. It happened because the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus was in them so strongly that they became good news for the other side. And as a matter of historical record, the world had never seen anything like it. I'll give you a few examples, historical examples of how this worked out in the early history of the church. You know, in the Roman Empire, we know that um, people in other socioeconomic classes, they lived on the other side. It was an extremely status and class-dominated society, uh, very hierarchical People were just divided up into these different classes and, and pretty much wealth determined your class. There was, for example, the equestrian class at the top of the ladder. And it kind of worked like this. If you were prominent enough to receive a horse out of the public funds, then you were in the upper stratus of Roman society. You were an equestrian. And then a little lower than that was the decurion class and still very wealthy, not as, as high as the equestrians, but still powerful. Maybe you would be powerful in a local kind of government setting. And then below that were citizens, even less wealth, but they had full rights of Romans. And then below citizens were the freed people. They were people who had once been slaves, but somehow had been able to obtain their freedom. And then at the very lowest level, at the bottom rung of the ladder, were the slaves. And in that day, in Roman society, you showed your status by your clothes. Uh, Citizens and above could wear a toga. Decurions and equestrians could wear different stripes on their toga. But if you were a slave, you could not wear a toga. Now I know today it's pretty hard to believe that human society was once so very superficial that, that you know, clothes were used to determine status. But there was once a time when that was true. 
And in that day, because of all those things, if you went to a meal where there were members of various classes, then always the equestrians got served first. They got served what was best. And after them, the Epicureans, and then the citizens and then the freed people. And if, if anything was left over, then the slaves got to eat. That's just the way life was. No one challenged it. But then there came onto the scene this odd, this new community It came to be called the church. It used to be called followers of the way. And these people thought, you know, when Jesus was here, Jesus didn't do that. They remembered that Jesus had said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So imagine in that day that you're a slave and someone invites you to this strange meeting of the followers of the way And you go in and there is a meal being served and someone welcomes you and tells you to take a seat at the table and you sit down at the table and as you sit, an equestrian comes and you can tell by the toga and the stripes and begins to serve you food. And you just find that you're weeping because no one has ever served you before and you look at this equestrian and you see that he's weeping because he's never before experience this joy of shared humanity. What has happened? (laughs) Well, Jesus has hit the road. Jesus has come to the other side. There's just no other side anymore. Here's another example. In the ancient world, take a guess. Was it better to be born a boy or a girl? Well, back then, being born a girl was not a lucky thing. In fact, one historian writes, and I quote, the exposure of unwanted female infants was legal, morally accepted, and widely practiced by all social classes in the Greco-Roman world. We actually have a letter from a husband to his wife, a businessman. It's dated pretty close to the time of Jesus, and this is what he writes. I'm quoting. He says to her, "'Know that I am still in Alexandria. I beg you to take good care of her baby son so they have a child.'" If you are delivered of a child before I come home, in other words, he knows she's pregnant. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. You have sent me word. Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Now, do you hear that? This guy thinks of himself as a good husband. He's a good father. It's just the world they lived in. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. But then there's this strange new community. And they remember that Jesus treated women with honor, that he even taught them, that he even invited them into the life of their little community. He valued them, he included them. They remember that Jesus, their master, their Lord, their savior, he taught that all life was sacred. You know, under Caesar Augustus in Rome, widows were forced to remarry or they could be fined for the crime of outliving their husbands. They had to pay taxes you know, when they outlived their husbands. But in this new community, caring for widows was one of the signs of authentic faith. One of Jesus' followers named Paul actually wrote these words to the church in Galatia. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The historian and author Thomas Cahill said that Jesus is the first person in the history of world literature to argue that all human beings are equal. And it wasn't just an idea. Christians actually lived it. I mean, is it any wonder that women flock to this new community? One more example. Two times in the early history of the church, in the year 165 and then the year 251, AD, there were empire-wide epidemics that killed between, ready for this, one-fourth and one-third of the empire's population. Just to put that in perspective, that would sort of be like the United States losing somewhere around 80 to 100 million people in one year. A year from now, they're just gone. I mean, it was 
unbelievably devastating. It's just almost unimaginable to try to process what was going on. It was just a horrifying, terrifying time for everyone. One Roman historian writes that the population in general would just push sufferers away. Even if they were in your family, as soon as somebody showed a sign of the disease, you got them out of your house. You didn't do anything for them. They had to stay away. You were just trying to stay alive. If somebody died, you just dumped the corpse in the ditch. It's treating them like dirt. You're just trying to not get sick. But then there was this strange new community, the church. And people thought, you know, when Jesus was alive, he cared for the sick. Jesus touched lepers when no one else would. Jesus healed people even when he got in trouble for it. And now we're his body. Now we're called to, to live as he lived. And so they actually did what Jesus did. They actually took people in. They cared for sick people. They cared for dying people, sometimes even at the cost of their own lives. And historians have seen, there's records that indicate that these epidemics and the way Christians responded to the epidemics played this enormous role in the transformation of their society and the receptivity of people in the culture to the message of Jesus Christ. Again, when Jesus left this earth, a few hundred followers, three and a half centuries later, about 56% of the Roman Empire named the name of Christ. See, and now it's our turn. I want to say a bit about what this means for us. There's a New York City pastor named Tim Keller. Many of you know about him. You've read some of his best-selling books. And in one of his messages one time, he, he talked about Proverbs 11.10. This verse says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. And he, he talked about how there are some people who, when they make it, when they rise to the top of their field, well, the people around them don't complain. These are people with such great character that the, the folks around them say, this is going to be good news for everyone, good news for the whole company, good news for the whole city. Now, in the Old Testament, these kind of people were called the righteous. Now, in our day, that word is not usually a compliment, right? It usually means self-righteous. I mean, when's the last time, you know, somebody called you righteous, and they meant it as a compliment, you know? I mean, you know, sometimes Dana says that I'm a righteous hunk, but that's not the same thing, you know, biblically or anything. Now, the Hebrew word for this was sadiq, and this is what Keller says. I love this definition. He says, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. Now, this means I have to ask this question. You need to ask this question, and it's this. Am I the kind of person someone in my neighborhood would say anything like that about? Would anyone in your neighborhood, would anyone in the company where you work say something like, you know, I don't believe what he believes, but I shudder to think what would happen to our neighborhood, to our company, if he weren't around? Is there anyone that lives around you who would say, you know, she had so much value, so much compassion, so much joy to our neighborhood, to our workplace. I may not agree with her faith, but I know this would be a poor place if she weren't here. You see, that's the righteous. These are the people Jesus calls the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And you see, in Jesus' gospel, we get confused about this. Sometimes we think the gospel is, here are the minimal requirements, the, the least amount of things you need to do in order to go to heaven when you die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom of God is here in Jesus. And it includes forgiveness by grace. It includes life forever in heaven. But the kingdom of God starts here, starts now. It is good news even for people who don't believe. The city rejoices when the righteous prosper. You see, when, when you have someone who comes to Jesus and receives his salvation, they become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, the idea is that he or she begins to do what Jesus says, and they become more generous, more compassionate, more friendly, and it becomes good for the neighborhood. You know, kingdoms have weapons. Well, the weapons of Jesus' kingdom our visits and listening ears and open hands and generous hearts. See, Jesus' idea, even today, is that when someone gets saved, it's good news, and it's good news for the neighbors, even the Muslim neighbors, even the Hindu neighbors, even the atheist neighbors. 
The same at the office, it's the same at school. Because if the gospel isn't good news for everyone, it really isn't good news for anyone. That's Jesus' idea. See, I hope we can see from this, these stories that the mission of the church is not for us to make sure that it's all okay for all of us on the inside while the rest of the world goes to hell. That's not our job. You know, once a week or so, the church gathers as the body of Christ, and that's a good thing. But then on Monday, that's tomorrow, the church hits the road. And then on Tuesday, it happens again. And on Thursday, Jesus keeps getting incarnated all over again through us, in homes, in offices, in schools. So where's the other side for us? Do you know anything about the other side? You know, I shared some of this last year during our Next Gen Spiritual Initiative. Let me share some stuff again with you about this. All around us in our region that we are seeking to reach, Tracy Mountain House, Lathrop, about 120,000 people live. That's our primary mission field That's where we live. And the research that we have indicates that probably best case scenario, about 100,000 of those people do not know Jesus Christ. There's a good chance it's more than that that don't know him. But at least 100,000 people who live where you live, who live on your street, they do not know Jesus Christ. That's the other side. The other side's all around us. It's next door. It's in the next cubicle. It's probably even for some of us in our own families. Are we going to the other side? This is so crucial for us to think about because today we live in a world that's just incredibly divided politically and racially, socioeconomically. It's so easy for us, even though we should know better, to find ourselves thinking it's all about our side and forget the other side. We need to remember that it was Jesus himself who said, it's all my side. There is no side. I want them all. And so I just want to ask you, Where's the other side for you? What's on the other side that Jesus is calling you to? Who's on the other side that Jesus is calling you to? It may be in your home. Maybe it starts with your marriage. Maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a different people group. Maybe it's a different culture. Maybe it's a different generation. See, what's the other side? And will you love the other side? Will you see how Jesus loved? And will you love like Jesus loved? In other words, will you hit the road? That's what Jesus is calling us to. You know, I alluded a couple of times to Next Gen, and earlier in the message I talked about the fact that uh, we're getting ready to break down and build a new building. I just want to ask you, you know, Lord willing, a year from now, we could be worshiping in a brand new auditorium. And I just want to ask you, what's the purpose of us having a brand new auditorium? And I want to tell you, the purpose of us having a brand new auditorium is not so that you can come to church and make sure that you have at least one empty seat on each side of you so you'll be comfortable. That's not why we're building a new building. The purpose of building a new building is what? to reach people in our region who are far from God, to share the gospel so that they come to Jesus and their sins are forgiven and their lives are changed and their families are transformed and goodness is brought into their world so they can tell other people and goodness can be brought into their worlds as well. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're going to all this trouble. That's why we're giving all this money because Jesus loves the other side. Do you? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to invite someone? Two weeks from today, it's going to be Easter Sunday. You got two weeks to get ready. Who in your life does God want you to connect with and at least offer an invitation that they might come and they might experience a little taste of the life of Jesus' community. See, God's not bringing any of us here today so that we can just hear a talk and think Jesus is really cool and it's so wonderful that he loves me. Jesus has brought us here today for some people who aren't here today. Who's that for you? Will you reach out to them?
Will you show him love? Will you tell him about Jesus? I want to invite you to bow your head, and we're going to pray together. And I want to ask you specifically if you will be praying for someone who's on the other side, someone that you know. And I would imagine that God, by his Holy Spirit, has been bringing some people into our minds. And if he's not, you can ask him to do that. But begin praying for that person. Write their name down, maybe on, on your message notes. Remember to pray for them tomorrow. Remember to ask God to open their heart. Remember to look for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Who's on the other side? And will we reach them? Father God, we are so grateful that you you crossed over to our side. You left heaven and came to earth. You left the beauty and the glory of your eternal home and you came to our dark, sin-sick world and you entered into everything that we experience so that you could die and so that we could live. Lord, remind us every day of the grace that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. And remind us that that grace calls us to show love and care for other people too. Lord, I pray that you would use us as a church family, that Southwinds would always be a place where we don't see other sides. We just see people that you sent your son, Jesus, to love and die for. Lord, I pray that you would open up opportunities for all of us to invite people, to connect with people, to love people, to share with people, and that we would see many, many people come to know you because we're telling them about all that you have done in our lives. Use us, Father, just like you used that man so long ago. We pray this all now in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people together said,